In Ephesians, the fifth chapter, we read some interesting words. Paul is encouraging us to be filled with the Spirit, to lead a Spirit-filled life. Let's begin with verse 15. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil, full of tests and trials. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. That's an interesting parallel that he's drawn, isn't it? I don't think that his uh, chief purpose is to encourage us simply uh, not to engage in a lifestyle of drunkenness, although we shouldn't do that. But I think he's creating an, an, an important parallel here. Rather than lead our lives uh, in a drunken state, which is a state in which we are under the influence of alcohol. In fact, if you're ticketed, um, well, I suppose you would be more than ticketed. You would be ticketed and arrested and uh, taken to jail that night. But uh, the charge is DUI, which means what? Driving under the influence, because in fact you're under the influence of alcohol and, and your judgment is impaired. Um, your, your sensory perception is impaired. And I think that what is suggested here is simply that you and I can lead our lives under the influence of the Holy Spirit so that our perception our judgment is influenced by Him. I think if our perceptions and our judgment is influenced by the Holy Spirit, it is probably going to be significantly different than it would otherwise be, don't you think? Well, uh, this is great advice. Lead a Spirit-filled life. How, Paul? Fortunately, he gives us some direction here. Indeed, the very next verse, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. And we dealt with those three a couple of weeks ago, but I want to revisit uh, this matter of praise. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs or songs of the Spirit, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. Now we're going to revisit this verse in a little while, but right now I'd like you to turn with me to James, the fourth chapter. Let's read verse 8. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. There's a certain reciprocity. But it suggests to me that God is eagerly awaiting this invitation to commune with us. We were created for fellowship with Him. After all, recall in the garden before the fall that man was walking with God each day in the cool of, of the day. They were enjoying this uh, intimate fellowship and communion with Him. I'm sure that we've all experienced moments in which we have felt the presence of Christ in a very real way. Perhaps it was during a time of prayer or corporate worship, but you experience a very real sense of the presence of God. I want to ask you, what what do you experience in those moments? What are some of the sensations? Fulfillment? Peace? Joy? Empowerment? And tell me, have you also experienced something that's very, it's very difficult to articulate? 
But there is a joy and a deep fulfillment that you experience in that moment that you have experienced on no other occasion and through no other means. We are made for fellowship with Him. And when we experience His very real presence, something within us responds to that. It drives a a joy that we can't really approach through any other means. What's unfortunate is that for many Christians, we experience that so rarely. There are a huge number of Christians who experience that within the first few weeks of being born again. Then it begins to dissipate. And they're often counseled, well, that that is the joy and glory of the new birth, but over time, that will wear thin. Then it's simply a matter of faith. Making your way through life, simply trusting in God's Word, and knowing, though you don't sense His presence, though you're not experiencing the freshness of that encounter that you once did, He is still present with you. I admire the resolve to press through and to follow Him faithfully and obediently, but there's more to the Christian life than that. We were made for fellowship and communion with Him to experience His presence in reality. And James explains here that uh, this this God whose presence we yearn for is waiting for the invitation to commune with us on that level. And what what, uh, elicits this response from Him? What invokes His presence? Drawing near to Him. By drawing near to God... God is then granted the invitation to draw near to us. Why do you suppose it is that we have to take that first step? Free will. The presence of God is very influential, isn't it? He could simply draw near to us of His own accord, but in so doing, He would violate our free will. And that's something that God has elected Never to do. Somehow, the unique uh, nature of uh, our personhood, of our humanity, would be violated if God simply drew near to us without an invitation. He's waiting on you and I to simply invite Him, and we do that by drawing near to Him. Now, how do we draw near to God? Hmm? What? Well, we invite Him. So, how do we invite Him? Do we just say, Lord, I invite You? We worship? Waiting on Him? I want to encourage you with this thought. You and I can draw near to God simply and as easily as turning our thoughts to Him. Simply turning our thoughts to Him can find God rushing in and filling you in the space around you with His presence. But there's more. Paul encourages us again to do what? To speak to ourselves, to each other, in psalms and hymns and songs of the Spirit, singing and making melody in our hearts to the Lord, and to give thanks always for all things. Now it's important that you and I do that. A couple of weeks ago, I mentioned why that might be important for us to give thanks always for all things. Simply to um, intentionally remind ourselves of the reality of God and His kingdom at every uh, moment of our lives. Particularly at those junctures where we may encounter challenge. We're going to give thanks even and especially in the midst of challenging times. It's easy during those times to 
to imagine that God is distant, so distant as to be remote and irrelevant to your situation. And suddenly you're digging in uh, to resolve that with what perhaps you feel is at your disposal and probably worrying and, and, and fretting. And have you noticed that when you worry, when you grow anxious, that it's typically then that um, the worst version of yourself shows up? You can really be unpleasant, can't you? Have you ever snapped at someone when you were, when you were uh, dealing with a, a anxiety, a stressful situation, and you just snapped at someone and you thought, why, why did I do that? That's not really me. You and I were not created with the capacity to bear up long or well under stress. In fact, we're commanded, we'll look at it in a few moments, we're commanded to be anxious for nothing. When we were created, we were created for an environment in which peace flourishes. And when we find ourselves continuing in an environment in which peace is absent from our lives and we are struggling under anxiety and stress, it has very telling effects on us psychologically. It has very telling effects on us physiologically, doesn't it? But spiritually, it has tremendous impact. Jesus explained that uh, in the end of days, times will become so stressful, so difficult to bear up under, that uh, men and women will grow spiritually deaf. Anxiety has the capacity to deafen us to the voice of God. And remember, Paul begins this uh, advising us to walk in the Spirit, to lead a Spirit-filled life, first of all, by urging us not to be ignorant of the will of the Lord. To know what the will of the Lord is. And that's something we would all like to know, isn't it? There are so many points in our lives where we think, what, what, what is God's will in this situation? What does He want me to do? And there are marvelous promises in the Word of God for so much of life. But sometimes we need something very, very specific. I would love to think there's a verse that I could turn to that says, Larry, by the way, do this now. But there isn't. But the same God who by His Spirit provided this is speaking to us today. Now, it will always harmonize with this written word. We'll always be in agreement with it. We'll never contradict it. But it can be very, very specific for our lives in, in those uh, particular moments where we're crying out uh, for understanding and for direction. You and I can live in a place where we, Paul is suggesting, where we know what the will of the Lord is. Let's look at uh, uh, the book of Matthew, chapter 14. We trust God, don't we? Yeah, we trust God. We believe in His power, don't we? Have you ever seen His power demonstrated? You've encountered Him in prayer, have been encouraged by what you experienced there and what you sensed there. And yet, you may find yourself from time to time growing anxious. So anxious that God seems distant. And you struggle to know what to do. You struggle against doubt. The disciples had, had uh, watched Jesus one afternoon perform an extraordinary miracle. He fed thousands and thousands with only a handful of uh, fish and loaves. You remember the story. Now they've witnessed this. And uh, the day is drawing to a close, and Jesus instructs them, let's see, verse um, 22, instructs the disciples, immediately he made the disciples get into a boat and go on ahead to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But by the time the boat, battered by the waves, by this time rather, the boat, battered by the waves, was far from land, for the wind was against them. 
And early in the morning, he came walking toward them on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified, saying, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately, Jesus spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Peter answered him. Peter was a pretty impulsive fellow, wasn't he? Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. What did Jesus say? Immediately. Listen, I think God loves it when you and I choose to walk by faith and not by sight. He is eager for us to leave behind uh, conventional means and trust in Him. And it's easy to talk about doing that. And we may have the same impulse that Peter uh, had and find ourselves leaping out of the boat and onto the water. When I was about uh, 15 years old, we were staying on the, a river one summer uh, on the St. John's River near Palatka. And uh, a nearby neighbor had a fruit-picking ladder, which was about 18 feet tall. And the St. John's runs shallow uh, for a good bit before it uh, drops into the deeper channels. And I swam with this uh, ladder out probably 150 yards from the shore near a bend in the river, and I plunged it down into the silt until the top was just below the surface of the water. And then I climbed up and stood on top of the ladder. So I was about 150 yards from the shore, and I just watched this fisherman came around the bend, and I stood and waved at them. And uh, they never drew any closer. They just stared the whole while until they got around the other bend. I think that was a surprise for them. Well, Peter was genuinely walking on the water here. Or was he? Was Peter walking on the water? Was he walking on the water? How many of you have ever gone swimming? Have you dove into the pool or dove into the lake or the ocean? What, what allows you to dive into water as opposed to diving off of your roof onto the lawn? Water's not a solid, right? You slip through it, unlike the lawn. You can make quite an impression there, but water you're going to slip through. Water doesn't enjoy the physical properties to allow you to walk on it. It doesn't now, and it didn't then. Peter was not walking on the water, and we'll see in just a moment that certainly he wasn't. What was he walking on? The word of the Lord, that word that said, come. Jesus said, come. God is upholding, according to the writer of Hebrews, all things by the word of his power. Peter was literally walking on that word which Jesus gave. Come. And Jesus gave it so instantly, didn't he? If it's you, bid me come. Come on. Peter leapt out of the boat. However, as he began walking toward Jesus, he noticed, verse 30, the strong wind. And he became frightened. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. So what happened? Peter began looking at Jesus. Then his gaze was distracted from Jesus, who is the author and finisher of our faith. And it was uh, drawn to the, the wind and the waves. Now, if we follow his logic, then it appears that Peter was thinking, hey, if it were just calm, this would be no problem at all. The real problem here is the wind and wave. Now, it's no easier to walk on calm water than it is rough water. The issue was Peter's faith was contingent upon remaining focused on Christ, the author and finisher of his faith, the source of his faith. Now, we can look at this and, and, and uh, ridicule Peter. I had an interesting experience, literally was writing a letter. I had uh, gone out in, in a sailboat that we kept on Lake Santa Fe, and I had gone out of the canal and out about a mile into the lake. And I didn't drop anchor, but I didn't have the sails up. I just motored out there, and I went down into the cabin, and I was writing a letter to a minister dealing with this issue. Literally, this, this uh, 
uh, set of uh, these verses of Scripture. And as I was writing the letter, I was thinking, it's, it's remarkable that Peter could have so easily become distracted. He had just seen Jesus perform that extraordinary miracle only hours before in which he fed the huge multitude with, with just a boy's lunch. <clears throat> well, I was <clears throat> writing this letter, <clears throat> and suddenly the boat healed over dramatically. And I thought, what in the world? And I, and I got my balance and ran up into the cockpit, and uh, just as they do in Florida, a little popcorn storm had blown up. Dark clouds were over Lake Santa Fe, and the boat was uh, healing over. I didn't even have the sails up, so it was a terrific wind. But lightning was striking. And I thought, wow, I have 33 foot of mass poking up out here, right in the middle of the lake. And I had these visions of a lightning strike and a giant hole in the bottom of the boat and sinking quickly. <laughs> so I just, uh, I dropped everything I was doing, <clears throat> started up the motor and was heading back in to the canal when the storm blew over. And I thought, well, that was fast. I'll, I'll stay out here. Let me go back and finish what I was doing. And I popped down in the cabin, looked at that letter, and I thought, you have no room to speak, Larry. And I crumpled it up and never finished it. Um, it's easy to uh, read this account and think, well, I know exactly what Peter did. The problem is we do this all the time. It is so easy. You and I are far more aware of the physical world in which we're living than we are of the reality of God who is invisible and his invisible kingdom. I can see this world. I can feel this world. I experience uh, a host of uh, feelings when I'm enduring the situations that life can throw my way. It's a very intentional act to remind ourselves of the reality of his presence, but it's imperative that we do it. Jesus uh, reached out and took his hand. He said, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? Now, was he, was he reprimanding Peter? Do you think he was ridiculing Peter? Was he mocking him? No, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? This is, he's posing a question that we need to ask ourselves. When we find ourselves in those uh, in similar circumstances, enduring that same sort of anxiety and fear that Peter was obviously experiencing, we need to ask ourselves, why do I have such little faith right now? Why am I doubting? Well, obviously, my attention has been diverted. Let's look at Colossians 3. Colossians, the third chapter. Verse 1, so if you have been raised with Christ, seek those things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things, what? Above. We're to set our mind on things above. That's an intentional act, isn't it? Not on things that are on earth. Now, how many of you have actually been advised that it is possible for a Christian to be too heavenly-minded to be any earthly good. Have you ever heard this axiom? You know, it's possible to be too heavenly-minded to be any earthly good. When in fact, I think, uh, if the truth be known, much of the time we are too earthly-minded to be much heavenly good. What does it mean to be uh, heavenly minded, to set our minds on things above? It simply means to turn our attention and our focus toward Him. Praise and thanksgiving allows us to do that with ease. It's not difficult. It allows us to do this with real um, ease. Let's uh, let's see. Um, let's take a peek at at Ephesians the third chapter. Just go back a few pages, please. Ephesians three, 
verse 14, Paul prays something unusual for the church at Ephesus. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth takes its name. I pray that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant that you may be strengthened in your inner being with power through his Spirit, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith as you are being rooted and grounded in love. I pray that you may have the power to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. This is a unique phrase. To know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. What does that suggest to you? If uh, I was in China several years ago and ate some very unusual foods from time to time, I remember one uh, one evening um, eating something. I thought, oh, this is rather tasty. It's sort of crunchy. Interesting flavor. And I was eating it, and the man said, so you're enjoying that, eh? He didn't quite say it like that. He was Chinese. <laughs> I said, yeah, this is, this is actually quite tasty. He goes, grasshopper. Oh, dear. <laughs> I really would have preferred not to know, because immediately I thought, that's a leg. That, that's a leg I'm, I'm, I'm feeling in my mouth right now. <laughs> and so no more grasshopper that evening. Um, but I, I sampled some foods that were very exotic. Now I could come back here and try to explain them, but it would be a rather like uh, a going down to maybe one of these um, remote villages in... Um, uh, the Amazon basin and trying to talk with him about chocolate ice cream would be very difficult, wouldn't it? It would be difficult to find the right words to say because, well, it's frozen. What is that? Well, it's chocolate. Again, what is that? <laughs> well, it has kind of a sweet, sugary taste. Now, they, they, that I might be able to uh, find something that they're eating to relate to that. But at the uh, end of that effort, they would at best have just a proximate understanding of what I'm talking about. What do they lack? An experience. They lack an experience. What Paul is suggesting is that what we know of Christ, uh, we arrive at uh, through at least two means. First, through his word but then through encounter. In fact, in this very same book, he explains that we are to hear him and be taught by him. So we are to actually enjoy encounters with Jesus with, in, in which our, uh, not only our communion is enriched, but our knowledge of who he is becomes fuller and more complete. He's not, he is not going to uh, restrict himself to the limitations of human language to communicate who he is to each of us. He does that personally through encounter. And, and Paul says something further that's quite interesting. Verse 20, now to him who by the power at work within us is able to accomplish abundantly far more than all we can ask or imagine. He does this through the power that is at work in us. So apparently, this power is liberated. Remember, it's the same power, apparently. He's referring to uh, in verse um, uh, 16, I pray that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant that you may be strengthened in your inner being with power through His Spirit. I want to experience in my personal life this sort of power regularly. 
not only because I need power for living, but if I'm going to be a resource to others, Jesus went about doing good and healing all who were sick and oppressed of the devil. Don't you want to be a heavenly resource for earthly needs? It's, it's, um, it's so discouraging to see people suffering and feel inadequate to the task of really ministering to them. Perhaps it's healing in their body. Perhaps it's healing in their hearts, in their minds. Their lives are unsettled. They've endured painful events, traumatic events perhaps. And you know that if Jesus were to walk into that room and touch them and speak a word over them, that healing and wholeness would come. But he wants, to, uh, he wants to achieve that through you and through me, doesn't he? In fact, he's restricted to those means. He wants to use us. But real power is necessary for that to happen. If we're going to um, be that resource, then actual power, his power needs to be resident in our lives. And we can see, but simply by virtue of the fact that Paul was praying this, that it is the will of God that that power be resident in each of our lives. Praise is one of the means by which that power is unleashed and strengthened in our lives. Uh, look with me at Psalm chapter 8, because it tells us something about the nature of praise that we really need to reckon with. Psalm 8. Turn to Psalm 8, and then hold that place. And you didn't know there was going to be a Bible drill tonight, did you? Turn to Matthew, the 21st chapter. I tell you, when I teach, I like to use lots of Scripture because I think it's important that we see what God has said about a matter. Uh, is this Larry's opinion? Or is this the Word of God? Uh, Matthew 21. Now let's begin with uh, fourteen. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, that is Jesus, and he cured them. But when the chief priests and scribes saw the amazing things that he did and heard the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they became angry and said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read? Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have what? Prepared or perfected praise for yourself. What is Jesus quoting? Psalm 8. Verse 2. Out of the mouths of babes and infants, you have founded a bulwark because of your foes. You, I think the King James says, still the enemy and the avenger, to silence the enemy and the avenger. Out of the mouths of babes and infants, you have founded a bulwark because of your foes to silence the enemy and the avengers. Now this is the verse that Jesus is quoting in relation to those who were praising him. Praise, it appears, enjoys extraordinary power. It exists not only to give thanks to God, but it exists because of the presence and reality of an adversary. Th that through it, we can steal the enemy and the avenger and build a bulwark up against him. But this is unique language. This sort of praise, the praise that steals the enemy and the avenger, only issues forth from the mouths of what? Babes and sucklings. Now, what is, what is that a picture of? We, we have four children. And uh, they came to us very small and hungry. And we would be up, you know, throughout the night, time to time, feeding um, that little baby. 
Why? Because that baby was utterly dependent upon us. You know, you couldn't walk into the nursery and say, okay, I've left the bottle on the counter. The formula is over here. I've already mixed it. Just pour it in there and warm it up. They, uh, this is the picture of utter helplessness and complete dependence. Praise of this sort can only come from those whose trust is holy in Him. Now we say, have faith in God. The rub, however, is that faith in God, authentic faith in God, cannot exist in the presence of faith in anything else. And we often are exercising faith in ourselves or in our circumstances. How many times have you said or heard someone say, I don't know what to do now except pray. There's nothing left to do now but pray. As if, as if, you know, this is, a, this is the court of last resort. I don't know. We'll see. What well, can it hurt? There's a problem with praying like that. It doesn't yield the result we're hoping for. I want to ask you, what, what prompts you to pray? I want you to think about it. I'm, I'm not playing a word game. What prompts you to pray? The emergence of a problem or the existence of a promise? There's a very big difference in how we pray if we're praying in response to a problem rather than in response to a promise. One, we're praying out of fear. There are no atheists in foxholes. The other, we are praying because our trust is so holy in God. Now this is where uh, uh, Paul is encouraging us to live uh, in Philippians chapter 4. We're almost ready to close. So hang in with me, please. Philippians 4. In uh, verse 6, this is familiar to us. Do not worry about anything. One version says, be anxious for nothing. Now, that almost sounds laughable, doesn't it? It doesn't sound realistic. Don't worry about anything. That sounds like a pop song. That's not the way you can live your life, though. How can you not worry? I worried constantly as a child... As soon as I became aware, it seems like I worried feverishly sometimes. It didn't change when I became an adult. The first four years into the, my first pastorate, I worried constantly. And all that would be required, to, it wasn't even a problem that was required to trigger it. Just a sense of foreboding or fear. And I would immediately imagine this must be God letting me know that something is a myth. Something's popping up on my radar. And so I would begin cataloging my life until I located the source. Ah, that must be it. Can you find something to worry about fairly easily? <laughs> oh, that must be it. And I, I remember that now this is subjective. I'm not asking you to accept it without question. But I remember... I think I was, I was in my mid-twenties. And uh, Beth and I were actually driving uh, to some friends' homes. In our first pass, it was in Boston. We were driving to New Hampshire to meet with some friends. And I had stopped at the gas station. I was fueling the car. And that feeling swept over me again. And I started cataloging everything. What, what, what could I possibly need to be concerned about? Clearly, there's something I should be worrying about. And God seemed to break through that fog and penetrate my mind with the thought, this is not me. I don't inspire you through fear. I lead you by my Spirit. And I encourage you uh, to trust me and walk in peace. This is not my voice. 
and it, that was jarring to me. Now, you know, it, it wasn't an audible voice, but it was as real to me as if God had walked up alongside of me while I was fueling the car and said, son, that's not me. And I began to really work through this over a period of months, and, and God, in His graciousness, showed me where I was, uh, where this problem, how it originated in my life, and how, how carefully I had cultivated it until it was a finely honed skill. But He delivered me from that, is delivering me from that. Um, Where did I ask you to turn? Oh, yes, where, where? Be anxious for nothing? Yeah. Okay, be anxious for nothing. It sounds a bit absurd, but this is a command. It is as sure a command as if God said, do not steal, do not commit adultery, do not worry. We are not equipped physically, psychologically, or spiritually, to engage in that uh, lifestyle and not suffer consequence. How do we do this? How do we, how do we um, worry about nothing? Do not worry about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Now we're going to see Psalm 8 folded in here, but we also are going to look at verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord when? That's praise, isn't it? That's thanksgiving. Rejoice in the Lord when? Now, it's as if Paul is making a point. Again, I say rejoice. He's repeating this. Rejoice in the Lord always. Now, have you ever had someone tell you, listen, here's what I need you to do. Don, this is what I need you to do. Okay, I got it. You said that twice. This is important. Paul is making an important point. Rejoice in the, Before he encourages us to pray about everything, he says, I want you to rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. So that means when I wake up in the morning, I wake up rejoicing. Do you always wake up rejoicing? Now, isn't it remarkable how often you wake up in the morning and you think, oh, oh God. Oh. Yeah, I have to I have to tackle that today, don't I? I need to deal with that situation or I've got to deal with that person. It's amazing how uh Satan can simply be standing beside your bed when you wake up in the morning. Ah, oh, good morning. Good morning. I've been waiting for you to open your eyes. I want to remind you how bad things are. Here's a whole batch of things to start worrying about. I've been sorting through them all night just for you. No, instead, very intentionally, we rejoice in the Lord. Like Peter, out on the water. Not because we're standing on anything substantial uh, other than the promise of God. That's my assurity, is what God has declared in His Word. That's my source of confidence, and that's uh, what will allow peace to, to flourish in my heart and mind. Rejoice in the Lord always. If I'm rejoicing in the Lord always, and I encounter a challenge, am I likely to pray prompted by the problem, or am I likely to pray because I trust in His promises, and I'm, I'm living in an awareness of His promise? Makes all the difference in the world. But he continues here, um, do not worry about everything, but in everything by prayer and supplication. This word supplication has an interesting meaning. It means in part to depreciate the value of what you bring to the table. In other words, when I pray, I'm, I'm bringing nothing but a problem. Not a solution. And we often try to do that, don't we? God, I was just thinking. If you did this and this, and you did this and this, that would solve everything. I, you know, I'm just spitballing here, but I think that'd be a great thing for you to do. Just do it like that. 
or we pray with this sort of in mind, we've already, we're the architect of our miracle. Let's do it like this. And maybe things start to unfold in a certain way. And I've watched people do it. I've observed it in my own life. Once something begins to move in the direction we feel like it ought to move in, it's funny how we transfer our faith very subtly, but very certainly over to that situation that's unfolding. Rather than uh, keeping it where it belongs with God. And when that, uns- when that situation uh, blows up, <laughs> doesn't unfold as we thought it might, then suddenly we find ourselves certain that uh, God has abandoned us. The mistake was we didn't simply keep our, our thoughts centered in Him and keep uh, uh, His praise on our lips. Uh, as, let, let's go, I, I'd like to close returning back to Ephesians, the fifth chapter. I've practiced this in my own life and observed something interesting. Um, when I take the time to obey this, again, very simple command to sing and make melody in my heart to the Lord with what? With what? Psalms and hymns and songs of the Spirit. Just simply worshiping Him, praising Him, giving thanks to Him. In only moment, peace is restored. I'm encouraged. Joy begins to emerge. And in that place of quietness, God's voice can be distinguished from among its imitators. And it's a simple act. It's so simple, we can try it right now. I'd like you just close your eyes. Lift your hands up. The Bible commands us to lift up holy hands without wrath and doubting. Let's just, where we are, I want you to quietly begin to give thanks to the Lord. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your goodness to us. For your kindness, Lord. We thank you for caring for us. We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for your love that is steadfast and eternal. We thank you for your mercies that cover our lives. We thank you for your peace. We thank you for your presence. We love you so much, Lord Jesus. We love you so much, Lord Jesus. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. Now, that was just a lab. (laughs) A little exercise. Did you experience something in just that simple act? You know, we take hands at the dinner table and we just begin to give thanks. And suddenly Jesus is seated there with us. Seated at my desk during the day. I just stopped. Thank you, Jesus. I love you. Doesn't have to be elaborate. You may want to actually sing a song. Or it may it's a song that you've just made up. Or it may be using your prayer language and, and a song, a spiritual song. In that moment. You're inviting the presence of God into your life and into that moment. And it comes. And if you do that enough during the day, you will enjoy this abiding sense of the presence of Jesus. The man named Harold Bredesen, who's my mentor for years, he, um Lutheran minister, received the infilling of the Holy Spirit in 1947. Went on to, he actually coined the phrase charismatic movement. He was one of the pioneers of that movement. And um, 
had an extraordinary ministry to leaders in the church and world leaders. He, he would call me. I never knew where he would call me from. He could be in an, the Oval Office. Or he might be uh, ministering to a derelict on the side of the road. He was always available. But uh, I discovered something unique about Harold. He lived in communion with the Lord. I picked him up from the airport the first time that I met him, drove him to a meeting. And uh, we were driving back after that meeting, and Harold uh, had an ability to sleep at the drop of a hat, <laughs> just suddenly be asleep. So I'm driving down the road. Now, I had just met him, so I, I wasn't familiar with his, his um, quirks. I'm driving along. I'm getting a little tired now. And all of a sudden, I hear, Oh, God! I was so startled. I said, "What, Harold, what is it? What's the matter? I didn't know if I, I hadn't seen a truck coming or I had hit someone or if he was in, in pain. He said, I'm just praying. Oh, God. Oh, God, I love you. Oh, God. Oh, God. <laughs> but I grew accustomed to that. And Harold did that all the time. He would just, he lived in this place of communion with the Lord. And if you ask Harold, hey, what do you, and this is a man who has had some experience in life. And uh, Harold, what do you think about this? I don't know. Let's pray. You know, a lot of people, they've been around for a few decades and he'd worked with some very high profile ministries. You know, what do you think about this? Well, I'll give you my opinion. It is very quick to give you their opinion. Harold, no, no, no. Let's pray. But I observed in his life this uh, abiding peace and joy. And he was such a resource. God used him to touch people constantly. But it's because he was living in communion with God through this simple act of praise. So I want to encourage you, um, as you leave here tonight, do this. It's not elaborate, guys. You don't have to have a prayer bench. You don't have to have a quiet room. You can, you, you can do it while you're driving home. You can do it while you're lying in bed. You can do it in the shower. You can do it while you're brushing your teeth. It'll sound garbled, but you can do it. You can live in this place where you are experiencing the very real presence of Jesus on a continual basis. And as you're doing that, His power is at work in you. That power, Paul said, can, which can, if it is at work in us, Yield prayers, answers to prayer that are exceedingly abundantly above all that we can ask or think. So I want to encourage you um, to just embrace this simply. Start tonight. And, and uh, as you do it, I know over the years it's become a practice for me. And it becomes easier and easier with each passing year. Father, we ask you for refreshing and renewal in our lives as you pour your Holy Spirit out upon us over and over and over, day by day. And, and grant us grace, Father, to walk this simple word out and to give you praise and thanksgiving as we continue throughout the day, Lord, and live in a place where we are communing with you day and night. In Jesus' name, amen.